So uh, welcome everybody um, to the first Catholic Theology Research Seminar of the new year and the new term. Um, I'm Karen Kilby, the B Professor of Catholic Theology and chairing the seminar. Um, and you're all very welcome. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, one strand that the Center for Catholic Studies has been really interested to develop in recent years is the study, what we've been calling the study of lived Catholicism. So moving into recent history, into social scientific study of Catholicism, it seems like a, um, a really important thing to do, really important um, dialogue partner for those of us who are theologians to be in contact with the kind of lived realities of the church and the official, the kind of academic study of that. And uh, we've had a couple of very uh, impressive, uh, lively conferences in that area. And so this particular paper today is, is kind of continuing that strand of our work. So it's really a very great pleasure to be able to welcome uh, Dr. Lusto, who um, works between theology and cultural anthropology. Um, as well as uh, doing quite a lot of journalism. So Dr. Lusto specializes in the study of Eastern Europe. And um, year before last, he published a book called Hungarian Catholic Intellectuals in Contemporary Romania, Reforming Apostles. Um, so it gives you a little bit of a sense of his area. I'll, I'll leave him to speak more about it. But the topic for today is studying theology ethnographically reflections on fieldwork with Hungarian Catholic intellectuals in contemporary Romania. So again, thank you so much for joining us from Massachusetts, I believe, or at least. Yes. Yes. So it's wonderful. <laughs> welcome to the Northeast of England. It's wonderful to have you. <laughs> uh, welcome in reverse to the Northeast of uh, North America uh, or the United States. Uh, well, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, coming for you this evening, for me this afternoon. Uh, thank you especially to the organizers of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar. Uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to speak about my book, um, uh, which did come out the year before last in 2022 uh, in Paul Grave Macmillan's Contemporary Anthropology of Religion book series. Um, I'll speak briefly about the context of the ethnographic fieldwork that uh, resulted in my uh, monograph. Um, I'll offer a precis of uh, relevant points from my book. Um, first, for example, the character of ethnic minority intellectualism uh, in its ambiguous relationship to the nation state in Eastern Europe. Uh, and second, my contribution to debates within the social sciences about how to use ethnographic research methods to study theology. Um, I'll conclude with a reflection on ethnography and its relationship to public scholarship uh, amid the cresting tide of right-wing populism and Christian nationalism in the West. Um, and then we'll have time for questions at the end of the seminar. So again, thank you so much for uh, coming this evening. Uh, from 2009 until 2013, I conducted two, uh, three and a half years of participant observational foreign language fieldwork in both Hungary and Romania. I lived in a Hungarian minority ethnic enclave in the Transylvania region of Romania. That's primarily where I did my fieldwork. Uh, I studied volunteer educational programs run by Hungarian Catholic, uh, Hungarian speaking Catholic intellectuals in Transylvania. 
More precisely, I studied a particular type of Transylvanian Hungarian Catholic intellectual institution with a specific type of mission. After the fall of state socialism in 1989, Transylvanian Hungarian Catholic intellectuals sought to revive their community's rural educational system by founding new educational institutions. I did field work in several of these institutions, including an orphanage, a Catholic parish choir, and a lecture society. The particular institutions where I conducted participant observation had started out as individual local institutions, but they had multiplied over the decades to become extensive networks with branches throughout Transylvania's ethnic minority Hungarian enclave. The individual priests who founded the first of these institutions still oversaw the now significantly expanded networks. Through this process of expansion, the priests themselves had become prominent public intellectuals whose public discourse often revolved around urging urban middle-class Hungarians to become personally involved in the orphanages, in their orphanages, choirs, and lecture societies, and thus in the practice of voluntary rural education. As I participated in educational programs in these institutions and conducted interviews with participants and priests, especially the, these kind of founding priests come public intellectuals, I discovered that these priests had modeled their institutions after a type of voluntary rural educational institution initially imagined by a group of Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals after World War I. Before World War I, the Hungarian state, which governed the Transylvania region, had determined intellectuals' pro professional authority and rationale. Intellectuals were authorized, credentialed mostly, that is, by state institutions to execute state policy in Transylvania. However, the dualist era Hungarian state collapsed in 1919. A short-lived communist revolutionary government rose to power, followed by widespread political violence and chaos and eventually a military occupation by Romanian forces. Meanwhile, Transylvania became part of an expanded Romanian state. The Romanian government took over Transylvania's major educational institutions. Before World War I, the Hungarian government had excluded most Romanians from holding positions in these institutions. But now the Romanian government fired Hungarian teachers and replaced them with Romanian intellectuals who, pers who pursued the Romanian state's policy of establishing a Romanian national culture in Transylvania. In response to these moves by the Romanian state, a post-war generation of Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals imagined a new type of rural educational institution that would operate without authorization from the uh, Romanian state, but would work with the Romanian state should conditions make this possible. Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals who took up positions in these institutions would be authorized by a divine call to teach. Post-war Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals thus would not need the Romanian state to authorize this kind of mission. In the 1990s, the Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals who founded the educational institutions I studied saw similarities between their own situation in the situation faced by ethnic minority intellectuals in the post-World War I period. In the 1990s, Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals distrusted the Romanian state, 
following the Romanian communist government's strong nationalistic turn in the 1980s. Transylvanian Hungarian intellectuals also doubted the Hungarian state's commitment to the Transylvanian Hungarian educational system, especially after Hungary's leftist government came out in opposition to a 2004 general referendum about supporting the Transylvanian Hungarian minority community. The orphanages, choirs, and lecture societies I studied were the result of an effort to create the schools for rural populations that the post-World War I generation had imagined. Schools led by teachers with a calling to educate, schools that could operate with authorization from the Romanian state, but did not need it necessarily. From this description, I hope it is clear that although I studied in voluntary educational institutions, I did not study educational institutions themselves, nor did I study a particular social group, that is intellectuals, despite the title of my talk, Reflections on Fieldwork with Hungarian Catholic Intellectuals. Rather, I should say that my book is about intellectualism, that is the socially, economically, and politically conditioned process of imagining and institutionalizing forms of intellectual authority, a process that in this case was undertaken within the social, economic, and political conditions of life as an ethnic minority in a European nation state. My book is about not only a particular type of ethnic minority intellectualism, but also a particular type of Catholic intellectual rationale. In my book, I say that I study Catholic theologians' contributions to a project to reimagine intellectual authority. And I say so based on the premise that theologians are intellectuals. Uh, an emerging dialogue, that sentence does seem banal, but it's actually for, for cultural anthropologists, it's not quite as banal as it might seem to other folks. Um, uh, an emerging dialogue between theologians and anthropologists has recently spurred scholars to investigate the conditions for an ethnic, ethnographic study of theology and to ask questions like, what is theology? How is theology lived? And how might scholars make lived theolo theologies into objects of ethnographic study. In my book, I try to show what productive new insights we might come to were we to reframe these questions. These insights are twofold. First, the ethnographic study of theology might be pursued in a manner more attuned to historical, social, and political context if it does not seek to study an object called theology. Despite the fact, again, that I've called this talk studying theology ethnographically. Rather, in my book, I try to turn attention to theologians as intellectuals, or better yet, to theologically informed intellectual traditions, both situated in and working on particular social, political, and religious worlds. Second, and I'll comment on this further in, in a little bit in this talk, when I offer some reflections on methodology. In my book, I try to show how the social scientific study of Catholic theology might embrace a grounded encounter with theologians as a way to think through the epistemological and ontological challenges of faith and faith communities for the ethnographic enterprise. In the post-World War I period, Transylvanian Hungarian Catholic intellectuals developed a new account of divine calling in a contested dialogue with Transylvanian Hungarian reformed Protestant theologians. 
Today, the Catholic public intellectuals whose publications I examine in my book, that is the individuals who rose to prominence in the post-socialist period by founding orphanages, choirs, and lecture societies, these public intellectuals continue to work through ideas about the character of divine calling. And they continue to do so in a contested conversation with intellectuals from other religious traditions. This latter day contested conversation is with public intellectuals who write for a growing urban middle-class population of spiritual, but not religious Hungarians. That is their primary identification and the primary way in which they identify as spiritual, but not religious. Um, I learned to talk about intellectuals contested uh, contestational dialogues from a body of social scientific literature called the anthropology of intellectuals. A major reason I argue that theologians are intellectuals is to help advance a dialogue between scholars who study Catholic, Catholic theology ethnographically and anthropologists who study intellectual cultures. But the learning should go both ways. So I also argue that anthropologists should approach their encounters with theologians at their field sites with the understanding that the theological enterprise is a contest over the institutional means for authorizing revelations of divine presence. With this understanding, with this definition, including its focus on divine presence, I preempt anthropologist Catherine Verdery's influential argument developed in her classic work on Romanian national uh, nationalist historians, that intellectuals are engaged in a competition over cultural representation. In short, presence comes before representation, such that I understand the theological enterprise in a grounded way as a contest over the means of revealing divine presence. In many ways, I pursued my fieldwork in Transylvania's ethnic Hungarian minority community, according to anthropology's classic outsider model. I am not a native speaker of Hungarian or Romanian. I learned these languages so that I could do this field work. I have no ties to these communities by birth or lineage. In fact, I had never been to Transylvania before 2005. I was raised in the American Unitarian Church, a politically left-wing and theologically liberal Protestant community. There is actually an indigenous Unitarian Church in Transylvania. Its membership is comprised of Hungarian speakers, and my upbringing as a Unitarian helped my acquaintances in Transylvania's Hungarian Catholic communities categorize and make sense of me on their own terms. But for most intents and purposes, during my fieldwork, I was an outsider engaging with otherness, in this case, a foreign tradition of intellectualism. Despite all of this, I could not help but engage in the various practices of investigating and reconstituting the boundaries between self and other, practices often lumped together under the term self-reflexivity. My research practices were inextricably also practices of self-reflexivity because, as intellectual historian Zygmunt Bauman has written, every definition of the intellectual is always a product of self-reflexivity. Whenever intellectuals write about another tradition of intellectualism, Bauman says, it is also an attempt to draw a boundary of their own identity, end quote. On the one hand, ethnography threw me into another world where I was forced to engage practically with otherness. Not simply another way of thinking, even though I was studying intellectuals, 
but another way of life, another way of being together in the world. On the other hand, as anthropologist Michael D. Jackson has written, quote, ethnography can also be a window of opportunity, a way of understanding oneself, but this time from the standpoint of another or from elsewhere, end quote. In the epilogue to my book, I give an account of the primary practices through which I discovered how fieldwork with Hungarian Catholic intellectuals was reconstructing the boundaries between self and other in my embodied life. These practices included pursuits that were already familiar to me from my intellectual formation, studying theology at Harvard Divinity School. Practices like reading and interpreting uh, Hungarian and Romanian language archival documents, and reading and interpreting contemporary Hungarian and Romanian theology, theological and social scientific texts. That is primarily what I learned to do in my theology program at Harvard Divinity School was reading and interpreting. But there were other practices too, like the embodied exercises my parish choir used to prepare for rehearsals and concerts. And the practice, and also the practice of reciting the rosary once a week with a group of neighbors in my apartment building where I was living in Transylvania. In both cases, I learned to appreciate how an intellectual's voice need not be rooted in the intellectual, in the individual bounded buffered body to be an effective technology for self-formation towards a calling. In both Catholic devotional song and recitational prayer, a singular individualized voice shifts into the space between subjects, becomes intersubjective, so to speak, and my distinctive personal voice with which I had drawn a boundary around my intellectual selfhood became also the voice of another petitioning the Virgin Mary. I felt drawn to ethnography initially for the same reason that I feel drawn to prayer and song, because they license the kind of controlled experimentation on myself that might enlarge my understanding of what it means to be human. I go into this process in more depth, as I said in the epilogue to my book, but for the purposes of this talk at Durham University's Catholic Theology Research Seminar, I wanna finish by saying a few words about this particular political moment as many societies in the West are confronting a, crest, a cresting tide of right-wing populism and Christian nationalism, no less in Hungary. I want to reflect on the ethnographic project, which by definition embeds us in webs of human relationships between self and other, and the particular risks we face as ethnographers when we engage in public scholarship. In 2019, Pope Francis announced that as part of his official apostolic journey to Romania, he would visit Transylvania's Our Lady of Cicciomio pilgrimage site. Our Lady of Cicciomio, because it is situated in Transylvania's Hungarian ethnic uh, minority enclave, is also known as the Hungarian National Shrine. Cicciomio is also where I lived for two years during my fieldwork. A month before I learned about the Pope's visit, Central European University uh, in Budapest, then in Budapest, announced that Hungary's right-wing government led by Prime Minister Viktor Orban had forced it to relocate. Founded in 1991, CEU has offered affordable English, English, English language higher education to students from more than 100 countries, including many Hungarians and Transylvanian Hungarians. 
I had been in residence at CEU in 2013 as a guest researcher in the sociology and social anthropology department. But in a sped up emergency legislative process, Victor Ordoban's governing political party called Fides revoked the institution's ability to issue US accredited degrees in Hungary. While CEU bent over backwards to comply with the new law so that it could remain in its original location, Fidesz politicians approached these negotiations in bad faith. Finally, CEU's administration announced the university was moving most of its programs to Vienna, Austria. I mourned this loss from Hungarian intellectual culture. I mourned even as I pursued my research further about the slippages of meaning and miscommunications that destabilized Transylvanian-Hungarian intellectuals' collaborations with the Hungarian state. Collaborations that ultimately have tightened the latter's ideological control over the field of Transylvanian-Hungarian educational institutions. In the words of CEU philosophy professor uh, Maria Kronfelder, writing on the blog of the American Philosophical Association, quote, it is Hungarians who will pay the highest price. End quote. In February of 2019, I reached out to America, the Jesuit Review, a magazine known for its role giving voice to debates within the U.S. Catholic progressive intel intelligentsia. I had never written an, an editorial before, but the editors invited me to write an article about the Pope's visit to Chikshom. I learned in the process that journalists don't write their own titles. America's editors titled my piece, quote, a message to Pope Francis, be wary of right-wing populists when you visit Romania, end quote. I had no pretensions in the original draft to uh, that the Pope would actually read what I had written. Uh, but I did want to help American Catholics have a discerning eye when they read other news coverage about the visit. I guessed that America's readers would have a vague sense that Hungary's government was right, right wing, and maybe that it had recently succeeded in ejecting CEU from the country. But most likely most readers would not know that there is a Hungarian ethnic minority in Romania, and much less that Hungary's right wing government has justified its rule as a way to defend the Transylvanian Hungarian ethnic minority. I wanted readers to know what the Pope was risking and what he might accomplish with this visit and how those with a stake in Hungarian politics might interpret his presence at Csikszentmihalyi. As has since become my habit when writing for popular Catholic publications, I highlighted internal dissent within the Hungarian Catholic Church. In the article about the Pope's visit, I raised awareness and urged support for Hungarian Catholics who have heeded the Pope's call to provide radical hospitality for migrants and refugees, as well as activism in defense of human rights for the marginalized. Within two weeks of appearing on America's website, a message to Pope Francis had been covered by journalists for secular and Catholic publications around the world, in Lithuania, in Hungary, Romania, Italy, Brazil, and France. The leader of Hungary's Jesuit order criticized my article in an open letter that uh, then republished by government-controlled media sites in Hungary. Hungary's ambassador to the Holy See pressured officials at the Jesuits' Rome headquarters to publish his own reply to my article, 
which appeared as a letter to the editor in America's Next Issue. These were, I should be honest, these were the more reasoned critiques of my article. On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I heard from many right-wing commentators who speculated on the state of my soul, my political ideology, my national identity, and also my sexuality. Apparently, based on the images on my professional website, I also have demonic facial features. Faculty at College of the Holy Cross regularly receive this type of public harassment, sometimes much, much worse, which is perhaps why my colleagues were understanding when they received emails slandering my research and academic publications. If I sound like I am exercising my privilege by making light of the online harassment I received, I assure uh, folks participants here today that I did not have lighthearted conversations with my family when I received hate mail suggesting the writers had knowledge of my home address. In my book, I used this episode to engage a growing cadre of critical anthropologists of Christianity, few of whom to my knowledge have published their political and ethical critiques of right-wing Christian nationalism in Christian magazines and journals intended for a public audience. I imagine that anthropologists who have been critical of right-wing Christian traditions have also engaged people at their field sites in conversations about these topics, but by not publishing their critiques in Christian magazines and journals, they limited the opportunities that intellectuals in these communities have to respond to these critiques in important and authoritative public forums. This exhortation concerning the ethics of critique within the ethnographic endeavor seemed apt in the ongoing conversation I have been participating in with anthropologists of Christianity. However, it may not be entirely apt for this particular conversation in an ongoing seminar about pertinent issues in the Catholic traditions of theology and church. So let me tell another brief story about this episode in my work as a public intellectual and also ethnographer. After my opinion editorial came out, I also received dis, uh, disapproving feedback from members of the parish choir uh, that uh, I wrote about in chapter four of my book. One choir member, a bass who had sat next to me for two years, wrote me to say, quote, I hope you never come back to Transylvania, end quote. Others in Transylvania voiced similar opinions, including members of a devout Catholic family in whose home I had lived for 18 months uh, while doing my fieldwork. My decision to inveigh against Hungary's right-wing regime did indeed sever these relationships, and it remains unclear to me if or how we will ever be able to restart the active reciprocities that had characterized these bonds before 2019. This is one of the risks that we run when as scholars committed to ethnography, we engage in critical public scholarship. Ethnographers might feel vulnerable to this particular risk since participant observational practice by definition is a technology for working on and in relationships. Ethnography embeds us in webs of human relationships, Michael D. Jackson has argued, the anthropologist Michael D. Jackson has argued, such that any knowledge or understanding that comes from ethnography is always an emergent property of unstable bonds between self and other. One Transylvanian acquaintance, a young parish organist and choir director, reached out to me during this period after the publication of my article. 
He was the only acquaintance who asked me to explain my article in my own words. This exchange stretched on for days and months and built on itself and became something of a friendship. When my son was born two years ago, two years ago now, I asked Robert to be his godfather. Today, Robert and I address each other with the Hungarian term for baptismal ritual kin, kuma in Hungarian, versions of which are widely used in Catholic Eastern Europe. And this example, this is how I'll, I'll close and finish. This, this example I think shows to me and illustrates how uh, Catholic communities actually provide opportunities, ritual opportunities for healing relationships that ethnographers uh, should take into account, uh, should engage with personally uh, as a means to potentially healing relationships, returning relationships to active reciprocities uh, uh, in the wake of critical public scholarship. That's where I'll end. Uh, thank you so much for your time and participating in this conversation. I look forward to your, uh, your questions.